Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Andrew Burt, Chief Privacy Officer, and Stephen Tao, co-founder and CTO, both of Immuta. Andrew recently co-authored an upcoming white paper entitled A Practical Guide to Managing Risk in Machine Learning Models. And I wanted to sit down with both of them to discuss some of the proposals they put forward to organizations who are deploying machine learning. There are many high-profile examples of machine learning models gone awry, and this has raised awareness among companies for the need for better tools and processes to manage such risks. There is now a growing interest in ethics among data scientists, specifically in tools for monitoring bias in machine learning. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I'm here at Strata Data London with Steve Tao, and uh, joining us remotely, his colleague, Andrew Burt, and they're both with Immuta. Um, So welcome to the data show, guys. Thanks, thanks for having us. So first off, I wanted to introduce each of you to our audience. So with Steve, I noticed he's worked before on geospatial data, which is something uh, I actually uh, uh, like that area, and I think it's an area that's underappreciated in terms of how difficult it can be. So tell us a little bit about how your experience in geospatial data informs your current work. Yeah, well, um, actually, my degree is uh, geography from from college as well. But uh, yeah, so my first job out of college was with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which obviously does a lot of geospatial data collecting and analysis. So, you know, you're right. It's very complex, multidimensional type space that you have to deal with. And then when you start mixing that with time series data, it becomes even more complicated. And now with smartphones, yeah. we have a lot of it. Exactly. And, and you know, so the privacy concerns and the controls around data like that, um, that's very precise. And, and you can locate what people are doing is, is really what drove us to build our company, which is all about privacy controls on data and managing your data for machine learning and, and analytics, which is, you know, what we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And Andrew, on the other hand, has a almost perfect background for this topic area, which is the combination of uh, uh, legal training and uh, engineering. So tell us how, about how you got into uh, combining these two interests of yours. Yeah, so happily, and, and thanks again, Ben, for hosting us. So I came to Muta from the FBI Cyber Division, where it is a heavy, a heavily regulated environment. Uh, we're using lots of sensitive data relating to investigations of cyber intrusions. And so it really was, I was sitting at this place where law enforcement and regulations and bureaucracy really met the need to use data in creative ways. Um, I think there are few areas of the IT landscape that need data science more than cybersecurity. You know, we are just deluged by data. Um, And so that's kind of how those two uh, strains met. Um, And that brought me to Amuta, which is really about the idea of kind of taking each of those, taking the difficulties with regulation, 
and the difficulties of data science and, you know, infusing them together and making them work within our platform. So one of the reasons I wanted to uh, sit down with uh, you two is you have a draft of a report entitled A Practical Guide to Managing Risks in Machine Learning Models. So many data scientists build uh, machine learning models, but the word risks uh, rarely enters into their uh, lexicon. So at a high level, what are some of the risks associated with machine learning models? Yeah, so um, I think in a lot of cases in regulated industries, that, that comes at the end of the process where the data scientist, unfortunately, is left to solve a problem without understanding the risk up front in a lot of cases. Um, and we've seen that, you know, they will spend months developing a model only to have it go to a model review board and have it be rejected and have them go back to the drawing board. And these could be anything from potentially the data quality wasn't the level that the, that the, the data science scientists believed it was. They're using features that are either biased or too risky for the organization to use. They, the outcome of the model is potentially so critical to the organization that they don't necessarily want automated decision-making um, happening around it. So um, lots of varying levels of concerns. And of course, you have the regulatory concerns as well with the GDPR now coming into place and the privacy controls that need to be in place and the reporting and auditing around that. So lots of things that people need to be worried about. Um, and I'm sure Andrew could even elaborate further with, with his law background. Yeah, Andrew, uh, are there specific examples where uh, risk was underappreciated uh, during the course of the life cycle of a machine learning model? Yeah, I mean, big, really, really important question, and that is happening all the time um, in financial environments, in medical environments, where you know the, the impact of an unintended consequence can be particularly high. Um, I think the one that gets floated around uh, most frequently, and, and one that I'm kind of the most fascinated by, you're probably well aware, was this example with where Google's image classifier was classifying certain racial groups in ways that were, were pretty offensive. Um, and I think what's most fascinating about that is, one, um, the engineers didn't fully understand. They, they, they had no real warning that this was going to happen. It just kind of happened, and it caught them by surprise. And so this was a, a real unintended risk. And then I think really interestingly, um, there was an article from earlier this year in Wired that uh, it's been, I think, three years since this problem was first identified. Um, and they still haven't been able to fully debug that model. And so I think when we talk about concepts like unintended consequences and risk and tech debt, and when we apply them to this new world of machine learning, um, I think it flips the risk environment kind of upside down. And it means that we need to approach these problems differently um, and kind of with a new construct, which is why you know we started to uh, uh, put this paper together. Yeah, actually, uh, last year at Strata Singapore, I tried to come up with some practical first steps that uh, data scientists can uh, look for when they're uh, building these models. So, for example, checking for disproportionate error rates, bias, and, and, and things like this. But, you know, as, as you do know, we're talking about ethics, so there's no 100% checklist that you can uh, go through. But is one of the goals of the paper uh, to give people some sort of uh, checklist or strategy for how to attack these uh, risks? Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, there's actually a literal checklist at the bottom of the paper to go through. But um, one of the things we noticed is there really wasn't a, a framework documented or agreed upon on how to approach risk in machine learning. 
Uh, there's something called SR11-7 that was more finance. Sounds maybe. very bureaucratic. Yes, it was, it, it was federal government um, finance focused, but but I believe applicable beyond the finance industry. And so this is us kind of taking some lessons out of that and trying to at least start a practical guide in draft format. Um, and we're searching feedback now on it as well, where you know it, it can at least start to set this framework for people to work towards. And instead of doing this after the fact risk, these review boards or, or trying to do it after all the work has happened, how much of that can you bake into the process and the frameworks that you enable your data science teams with so that um, they can do their job and not really have to worry about the risk stuff, um, slowing them down up front. So, Andrew, um, I think one of the things that I noticed, so one of the reasons I gave that talk is uh, at a high level, I noticed that the positive thing is that the data science community is aware of ethics and the bias and the need to check for them. But it seemed like a lot of the articles and the talks had to do with here are a bunch of scary stories. This can happen. But there weren't a lot of prescriptive guidelines. So can you kind of rattle off a few things in, in the report that our practitioners in the audience might find uh, useful? Yeah, happily. And, and I would just say that I think the insight that drove you to give that talk is really the same insight that drove us to write this paper. Um, I think in some senses, you know, we're, we're co-authoring this with the Future of Privacy Forum. And I think in some senses, it's really born out of this frustration that everybody understands that data science and machine learning is being used for more and more important things. And therefore, if unintended consequences happen, they become more weighty and more impactful. So we all get that. And everybody is writing about that. You know, it, it, you, you throw a dart and hit an article that says machine learning is, you know, taking over the world. But for actual practitioners, for both legal practitioners and data scientists, there's just really, we, we found not enough out there to say, this is how you need to go about. This is a reasonable standard um, for trying to manage some of these risks. So the, the question was, um, uh, what exactly do we suggest? And I'm happy to run through it. If you want, we can dive into uh, more details. I would say the big takeaway from our paper is that lawyers and compliance and privacy folks live in one world and data scientists live in another with competing objectives. And that can no longer be the case. They need to talk to each other. They need to have a shared process and some shared terminology so that everybody can communicate. So one of the, the recommendations that we make, we take from some of the model risk management frameworks, which is to create what we call lines of defense, which are basically different lines of reviewers who review from the you know creation testing phase to validation to an auditing phase periodically, and that the members of those lines of review need to be made up of teams with multiple expertise. So there needs to be data owners, the people responsible for the data being piped into the models. There need to be compliance personnel who are thinking about legal and ethical obligations. There need to be data scientists. There also need to be subject domain experts. We really go through a, a host of different recommendations, but just from, again, at the high level, we, we kind of dive into how you should be thinking about de-risking and monitoring your input data, how you should be thinking about monitoring and de-risking your output data and using output data for models is kind of a sign of the overall health of the model. And then I think really importantly is this idea of um, thinking about what it means for a model to fail and having a concrete plan for you know what that means, how to correct it if it fails, and how to pull it from production uh, if you need to. So those, those are some kind of wave tops. 
So Steve, uh, in many ways, the things that Andrew listed doesn't penalize a model for being a black box, which is, I think, realistic because people are using black box models. So there are ways of kind of studying the behavior of this black box short of understanding how it works, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and in fact, I'm talking about this tomorrow at, at, at my session on um, how does the GDPR ex uh, impact machine learning? Um, and a lot of people are concerned about language in there. I believe it's Recital 71 where you must be able to explain the, um, how the model came to that conclusion. And I think, I think people are, are kind of overreacting to this a little bit, and we need to inject some common sense in there that, hey, at the end of the day, you can explain what data went in. You can explain the logic of what you're trying to solve and why. You don't have to explain every you know, neuron in the neural net and how it was correlated to every other. Or honestly, we don't even know how the brain works, right? Exactly. So, so I think the GDPR is actually doing a good thing. It's, it's, it's enabling the consumers to understand how decisions are being made about them, but they don't have to understand everything in the weeds about it because that's the whole point of machine learning is that it can do things that, the, that we can't as humans. So it's, that's why we use it. And, that's, and there are just cases where it makes sense to trust the model rather than a human to, to get things done and, and, and potentially and hopefully more accurately. Andrew, going back to this notion of de-risking the input data set and, uh, and uh, having some level of conf comfort around black box models, uh, a friend of mine recently tweeted and it kind of created uh, this big uh, discussion on Twitter, Reza Sade, uh, who's been on this podcast. Basically, his point was, uh, it's, it's okay that we talk about explainability and interpretability, but we should do that maybe after the model. We build the model and then we figure out how to explain it. But don't, don't kind of impose from the beginning, I'm only going to work with explainable models. So what's your feeling around these? Yeah, so I think that's a great point. Um, I can think of kind of two responses. The first is that, you know, the title of this white paper is Beyond Explainability. And so that's really, in essence, what we're saying is that there is a lot more to governing machine learning models than just trying to understand their inner workings. And so I think that that is 100% correct in the sense that I think we as a community, the data science community, and, and perhaps as a legal community, I think have been overly focused on trying to figure out exactly how these models work. And you made a good point that we as humans can't even fully explain what it is uh, or why it is that we take some actions. On the other hand, though, um, as a bit of uh, lawyerly caution, I would say that I think there is a, there's kind of a default notion, an unreflexive notion within the world of engineering to just make your model as predictably powerful as possible and as accurate as possible. And the truth is that while that's good, that's not always the right default. And so there ends up uh, in practice quite frequently being this trade-off between predictive power and explainability. And so I think that that trade-off needs to be thought about at the beginning of any model development process, just so that we're fully aware of exactly what it is that we're giving up and we're prioritizing from the start. So I, I'm not saying that fully black box models are a bad thing, but I don't think that we should create models that have downsides without understanding what those downsides are kind of before we go into this process. I guess my response to that is that I think that the point of, uh, of what Ressa was saying is that uh, have the machine learning researchers research the best possible model and then 
have them also research ways of how to interpret those best possible models. So in other words, uh, 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 optimize what you need to optimize, but also don't forget that you have to interpret it later. But you know what I mean? So the, the, the sequence of events is... Uh, yeah, and I think, I think part of what Andrew was touching on when in the trade-off of explainability is there are some cases where you know you might want to inform your consumers let's say it's a credit rating i mean yeah, yeah, you may want to inform them how to improve the credit rating it might not there, be there useful are, there are application domains where you have no choice right and, and so if you have to explain how someone can improve themselves as far as the model understands them you you probably need a little bit more explainability then andrew i'm trying to remember the quote so there's this great quote from paul ohm in a paper where he says we're ushering in an age where you know, police may arrest you for walking in the park because of the way your hair is cut and how far apart you are walking from the person next to you. Meaning the features going into the model may be completely meaningless to us as humans, but correlations to past trends make them, their proxies to real life, um, make them important in some way. So even if you are able to explain exactly what features are important to this model, it may still be meaningless to the person that you're trying to explain that to. So Andrew, you, you folks have drafted this white paper, but you also started a company, Immuta. So based on your conversations with data scientists, enterprises, and people in industry, where are we as a community in terms of going beyond talking about this, but having kind of uh, uh, groups within companies having strategies for actually uh, implementing some of the ideas or things on your uh, checklist? Yeah, so... Great question, and, and I mean, you're 100% right. I think that the connection between the paper and, and Immuta as a company and where we're going is that there's this real desperate need that we're seeing for, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, data science programs want to make really good models, really powerful models. And on the other hand, uh, legal and compliance departments want to exert a lot of control over the data that goes into the models and how those models are used. Um, and so we are seeing a real in some senses, I would say a crisis, but a real kind of desperate need for this problem to be solved. Because as data science departments get more resources, as they become more important within organizations, um, this problem, this managing risk and governing the ultimate output of, of data science programs um, is becoming, that need is becoming a lot more acute. And so what we're seeing is, frankly, there aren't a lot of good answers to this problem set, which is why we, we built Immuta. And what we're seeing is a very kind of hungry market where people need to solve this problem because, you know, they have budget and they have a directive. And that's, you know, and, and that directive is use data to make whatever it is our company's doing, you know, more efficient, improve it in some way. And frequently that mandate runs, you know, square into legal and compliance hurdles. Um, so that was, that was a long answer to, to saying that I think folks are really just trying to appreciate, the, starting to appreciate the depth of the problem. So uh, as I read your report, I think uh, there's three main areas that people should start thinking about. So one, focus on uh, the input data, right? So de-risking the input data, using the output of the model as a window into how the model works, and uh, figuring out uh, mechanisms to determine when to pull a model from production. But one of the reasons I gave this talk that I described earlier is uh, we're talking right now, we're still in the early stages of machine learning. So 
what I outlined here is kind of challenging even for one model, mm -hmm. right? So now, fast forward five years from now, typical enterprise may have 10,000, a million models in production. So that's why I kind of uh, ended my talk as by saying we need machine learning to monitor machine learning. So how do you feel about kind of this uh, statement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the all the bookkeeping that goes that, that's required, for, I, I call it ML bookkeeping, but all of that metadata about your models, uh, I believe is is critically lacking, as Andrew just discussed. You know, I, I've done several talks. And we're going to scale up to millions yeah, of models. Exactly. And, and so, you know, I've done talks where I'll say, okay, how many of you raise your hands have production models in production right now? And, you know, I get 50 hands raised. I say, well, how many of you know exactly what data went into training all of those? And I get two hands raised. That really should be 50 more hands raised. Right. Um, and, and so it's not happening right now. So um, I think when we get to that scale, there's, there needs to be automation around um, what data is, is going into which models. And, and that happens, that, that blends itself with the kind of controls you need for privacy as well. So if you, if you can manage the access and the privacy controls at the layer that's feeding your model training, then you start to understand exactly what data is going into which models, and then you can start to track the output of those models similarly as, as new data sources that are available, either for downstream models or for simply monitoring the output for bias or, or drift. So I think a lot of this happens at that, we call it the data plane between the data and the analysts and the, and, and the models being trained. But like you said, there's gonna be, we're gonna need tools to automate these things. Absolutely. Hey, Andrew, the, uh... The other thing that uh, we share in common is kind of the the optimistic hope and belief that the community is now aware of uh, some of these issues. So they they themselves are proactively devising, for example, techniques for privacy preserving BI or privacy preserving machine learning. So based on your conversations with people in the community, are people aware of these developments and are they starting to think about injecting privacy in their analytics? So um, I think people are 100% aware of the importance of what's going on. And I, I don't know what percentage, I think some are, are really attuned to some of the you know really awesome tools that have been put out into the world. Lime is a really good example. You know, there are a host of tools that do really good things. Differential privacy, right? And you guys have been working with uh, some interesting folks as well, right? So Yeah, we've actually, um, uh, differential privacy is something we think is so important to the future of data science. We've created, we've created it as an automated policy that you can actually just apply differential privacy to any uh, underlying storage technology within Immuta. So we are very, you know, we are staying on top of all these developments. I, I think my sense is that the data science community is also aware of these of the importance, but is not as closely following all the specific tools that are being introduced, um, or not following them, I think, as closely as they need to. The University of Chicago's Data Science for Good just released a really good uh, tool set for detecting bias in models. I mentioned Lime. There, there are a bunch of them, um, but in, in my interactions with the data science community, um, I have found that not enough people, you know, are fully up to speed on on what the latest and greatest is and what's available. I think, uh, so I'm going to give a short keynote tomorrow. I'm going to describe kind of the, the state among a few stakeholders. So on regulators, right? So you mentioned GDPR are obviously engaged in doing something about uh, uh, privacy. There's now 178 computer science courses across 80 universities that are focused on ethics. 
So I think the next generation of members of the community will be engaged. I think uh, there's a class of companies that are uh, becoming known for valuing privacy. So Apple comes to mind. And then finally, I think the users are also very uh, much uh, aware of uh, the need for transparency and control. By the way, uh, I've started hearing, I don't know about uh, you guys, but I've started hearing about people talking about control, not just over their data. So they want to know what's happening to their data, but they want some people are saying, maybe we should give users some say about the model, right? So for example, classic example is YouTube optimizes only for watch time, which people have then noticed that in order to keep people engaged in YouTube and stay there longer, you have to give them more and more extreme content so they're trapped in this filter bubble. Mm -hmm. But what if you had the option of saying, no, I don't want that metric to be optimized. I want the metric to be, you know, teach me something new or make me happy or, you know what I mean? So uh, I think the, the notion of user control may start penetrating beyond the model. But multiple stakeholders seem to be really uh, engaged in these topics. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, times are changing. I think I think I saw the same article where someone was, after the, the whole Facebook debacle, was suggesting that they allow the users to provide input into how, how Facebook serves up their ads and what they can do with their data in terms of their model. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, we're, we've been on this collision course and I don't think people have really understood how their data has been being used and now they do. And so hence, I think, why, why we have so many ethics courses that you just mentioned. I didn't realize that. I think that's great. And so, you know, you've, on, on, the, on the one side, you've got the compliance and regulatory folks that aren't very technical in some cases, they probably don't, a lot of them don't know what differential privacy is. And you've got the data scientists that are trying to make good models and they're not bad people. I mean, they're, they're, they're just trying to make their models perform. So there's got to be this, this middle ground. And I think people are trying to find it and are thirsty for it. And many things are coming out. I think in terms of differential privacy, going back what you, what you said, um, a lot of research out of Google on that topic as well. This researcher we work closely with, Nicholas Papernote, put out something called Pate, where he actually proved that training his model with differentially private data actually improved its performance. So I don't think they need to be at odds with each other. I think it, they can actually be enablers for each other. So, Andrew, what are you folks hoping from this report? Uh, imagine you want to start a conversation, but you also want probably to seed people with ideas for how to move forward. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what we're hoping, so uh, like, uh, again, I think there is this real need for resolution between these two communities, the legal and the data science community. And so what we're hoping is that this will be a living document. We're going to release it with the future privacy forum in June. We're actively soliciting feedback now. And, you know, once we release it, we're going to be soliciting feedback. And the hope is that this is a living document that can kind of bridge the gap between the data science and machine learning community and the legal community, and that by you know continuing to improve this, we can kind of set a roadmap or a set of reasonable standards that everybody can agree on. Um, because right now there's just there's not a lot out there, and so the hope is that this really forms the foundation or the starting point for something that can help both lawyers and and data scientists you know get a get a grip on some of the risks that we're facing um, as we begin to embrace machine learning. So closing question for each of you. So Steve and I are here in London on a Tuesday, and Friday is the uh, the date that GDPR is, is to come online. So um, what's your sense of 
readiness, panic, or uh, what is the state of uh, readiness among the people you've uh, uh, spoken with, not just here, but also across the pond in the U.S.? Yeah, we, I mean, we speak to a lot of people about this, and I think different groups are, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of people that are ignoring it, the people that are halfway prepared for it, to people that misinterpreted it and think they're prepared for it, to people that are focused on parts of it that and not other parts of it. So I think because the law is so large and ambiguous, there's just not, you know, a, a one shot. So anyone that tells you that they solve GDPR with their software is telling you a lie because there's just there's so many layers and so many different things that you need to manage. We manage one, one of the Immuta is not I don't want to call ourselves a GDPR solution. We're a we're a the data layer that we've been talking about control plane that can help with machine learning and happen to solve some GDPR issues as well, which is, you know, the access piece. But we're not going to collect consent from your users, for example. So there's just so many layers in there that these organizations need to be concerned with. But I truly believe that if you do this right, it should, it's the stuff you should have been doing all along and it will, you will be better for it. I actually saw a tweet yesterday, I copied it in my slides for tomorrow, where someone said GDPR is like having a personal trainer and chef. It sucks in the beginning, but over time, you're going to be better off for it. And I really believe that because if people can get to the data in a compliant way, if you've got all the machine learning bookkeeping that we've been talking about, these are the things GDPR is asking you to do. You should be doing it anyway. You're going to be better off because of it. So I'm going to put Andrew on the spot uh, and have him close this conversation by looking ahead five years, Andrew. So where will we be uh, when it, with respect to some of these topics five years from now? Um, uh, th <laughs> thank you for putting me on the spot. I'm happy to answer that. Um, uh, so I think that this Friday, the GDPR enactment date, um, I, I think is, um, I think it's really the beginning of a larger trend. And just like I think we're trying to fill this need in the white paper, I think governments and populations around the world are realizing the really, really, really um, important, the growing importance of data science. And so I think we're going to be looking at an environment where all data science is regulated data science and all data usage is regulated data usage. And so I think the ability for many data scientists to have risk and compliance and regulations to have those kind of as ideals and uh, problems that are on the back burner that, like we talked about earlier, that are then thought about at the end of the process. Um, I think that's a luxury and I think that's going to go away. So I think my big takeaway, um, I think it's starting to happen now. And I think five years, it's just going to be, you know, standard rules of the road is that I think second to your data scientists, the most important, you know, role in your data science program is going to be that of lawyers. Um, I, I think that the future in five years, the future of data science is going to be written by data scientists worrying about predictive accuracy of their models and by lawyers, you know, right there alongside them, making sure that um, these models are being deployed in ways that uh, don't significantly uh, add risk. So are you, are, are you saying that uh, five years from now we'll have courses, data science courses in law schools? I hope so, yes. And I think the reverse. I think so right now there are ethics courses and that's great, but I think there are going to be courses that are not just, you know, what's the right thing to do with data, but here are how laws are structured in different areas of the world. So you have some basic sense as a data scientist 
of why lawyers are telling you what they're telling you. And I think the reverse is also true. I think in law schools, we're going to start to see different flavors of highly technical courses start to be embedded within law school curriculum. At, at Amuta, we have a legal engineering team. And the, that's essentially that's the entire premise. The premise is that we need to think about law. We need to think about data science through the lens of how laws are starting to place new burdens on these activities. Well, this has been a great conversation. And uh, thank you, Andrew and Steve. Thanks, Thanks so much for, for, uh, for letting me join. You can follow Andrew Burt and Stephen Tao on Twitter at andbert and at Steve underscore Tao, respectively. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. And we'll soon be on Spotify. Spotify.